It, this is a weird thing for me, and it's it's a, it's an incredible thing to be in this space. Um, this place is very special uh, to me. I, I I was 25 years leading churches, and I. I reckon the other day I was thinking about it. I probably preached three, three sermons or three talks every week for 25 years. And uh, in the last three years, I've preached three times. R literally. So this is like, I mean, anything could happen today. I've got no idea what's going to happen. But it's, it's just a, a new thing for me. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that which we don't need to get into right now. But I, I have a new, a new role in life. I, I lead this uh, leadership culture agency. That sounds very good, doesn't it? I'm a coach. And I do consultancy for, you know, the, the Lord has opened up this most remarkable group of individuals that I get to speak into their life. And I get to be around their lives. And, uh, you know, some of the cars that you drive and the drinks that you drink and the advertisements that you see, I get to be around these people who make all that stuff. And I get to do this kind of undercover priest thing. Does that make sense? Where I just get to be who I am in spaces with people who are probably never coming to your church. Um, and, and it's really cool. What, I, what I've begun to realize is this that actually I'm just a relational coach. I'm a relationships coach. I never broadcast that. I probably never worked that out before, but what I, what I effectively do is I help people get in touch with themselves, their true selves. What I help people do is I help people get in touch with one another and work out why they're so dysfunctional. What I do is I help teams get in touch with each other and I help organizations get in touch with each other because I truly believe that growth is a subset of health, not health a subset of growth. And I spend almost all of my time talking about trust. Why do you not trust? What is this trust thing? So I've got a little equation that I use on the screen that some of you will have will have seen a number of times before, but I just want to talk you through this really quickly before we open the Bible and find Jesus. So trust, according to people who are smarter than me, equals credibility plus reliability plus relationship. So, credibility. Can you do the job that you're being asked to do? Do you have the skills? Reliability. Will you do the job that you're telling me that you will do in the time that you say you're going to do it? Relationship. Can I really know that I'm speaking to the real you? Have you got so many masks on that you don't even know who the real you is? And am I always suspicious that someone else is going to show up next time I speak to you? So they are the numerators in the equation. I don't know if we've not got it on the screen. Have we got it? No, who knows? Anyway, they are the numerators on the, in the equation. Credibility, reliability, relationship. The denominator is self-orientation. In other words, every benefit that you get above that line is negated by your selfishness below the line. So in other words, if I think that you're only credible, reliable, and relational if it's in your interest to be credible, reliable, and relational. I don't trust you. Because you're just in it. You know, you know, Rob's just in it for Rob. <laughs> the dwarves are for the dwarves. Rob's just in it for Rob. So I can't trust Rob because I don't know whether, what angle he's got. And here's what I've discovered is the only person who aces this equation is Jesus. 
The only person who aces this equation is Jesus. He's totally credible. If you do any kind of research into who Jesus says he is, it makes sense that he is God. He's absolutely reliable. He's going to let you down the second of never. He's totally relational. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I show up. And he's in it for you. He's in it for you. And it's deeply challenging. I think it's deeply challenging because we believe that, or at least most of us in this room believe that. That's why you're here. That's why you bothered getting out of bed this morning and showing up. That's why you didn't do something else because you, kind of, you kind of believe that this is true. Jesus is not just the savior. He's also the Lord. He really is God. He's totally trustworthy. Therefore, he's authoritative. That's why we bother doing this thing, but it's altogether another thing letting him be God. Letting him be the authority of our lives. Letting him be the Lord of my finances and my fears and my family and all the possibilities. You know, when you've got four girls, it's like the whack-a-mole game. <laughs> totally is. You kind of, you solve the one that's always causing the problems and you think everything's good and you turn around and three popped up. <laughs> Not that you hit them on, well, sometimes you, no, no, you don't. <laughs> down. It's just, do I really trust Jesus? And I sing about it every Sunday with my hands in the air. But when it comes down to it, do I really trust that he's got it? Or do I try and have it for him? So that's where we're going to go. We begin in this God life by serving him. And before we know it, and we will be shocked by this, before we know it, we have him serving us. Our plans, our needs, our kids, our comfort. See, here's the thing. Jesus is not the thing that helps you do the thing. He's the thing. He, let me say that again. He's not the thing that helps you do the thing. He's not the way to get the life that you always wanted. He's the life. <laughs> he's not the way to get the peace that you're craving he's the peace and so often we use Jesus and we abuse Jesus to get the things that we think he owes us or should give us and then we leave communities like this because he didn't do what he said he would do and then we say we've lost our faith and I want to say no you lost your trust because he's the thing and so all I want to do today is land the plane on, on that. I'm going to take like another 25 minutes to do so, but I haven't preached for ages. It could be an hour and 25 minutes. <laughs> Nobody knows. So I'd love you to turn in your Bibles. Um, if you have it on a phone, find it on a phone. Don't play Angry Birds. Um, and I'd like you to turn to Mark's Gospel. And 
I want to talk about what it looks like to make Jesus and have Jesus as the authority of your life in a significantly shifting world where, where we're in a global collective liminal space, where we're off balance and we're all trying to work out what the future looks like and whether there is hope for us. We're here to meet Jesus in these things and say, you're trustworthy and I'm going to trust you. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. And I need to give you some context. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Mark, Mark 8 and 9 operate as the, as the hinge chapters in Mark's Gospel. Mark, Mark's Gospel is probably uh, the eyewitness report of Peter. So what we're reading is, is stuff through the lens of Peter. And uh, Mark's writing it down. And this is like the, hin the hinge point in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, where you'll know the story if you've hung around church, where Jesus says, who do people say I am? And everyone starts talking about the people that people say that Jesus is. And Peter says, you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so it, it's a really profound moment because Jesus says, I am God. In, in a Roman world, he says, I'm king. In a Jewish world, he's saying, I'm Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I supersede and subvert every earthly kingdom. I'm God. And, and what Peter declares by faith at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is going to declare by sight on the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the hinge points of, of Mark's gospel. So let's read together. And then I want you to keep it open. Because um, this is the word of God. After six days, this is verse two, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. <laughs> Sounds like a dodgy 1980s soap advert, doesn't it? No one could and, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he, I love this, for he did not know what to say. <laughs> How many of you extroverts out there don't know what you're thinking until you start speaking? But you need to fill the atmosphere somewhere with some words. For he didn't know what to say, so we just said something. Don't you think that's Peter? <sighs> for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what does this rising from the dead might mean? And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Great conversation. This is the apex of Mark's gospel. And both of these stories are saying one thing. They're saying this is who Jesus is. You can trust him with your life. And, and, and they're posturing this question to us through the ages, will, will you? Will you 
again. So let's, let's level here. This is a really strange story, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the stories that proves that the Bible must be true, because you wouldn't make this stuff up. It's just weird. It's just totally weird. It's one of these things that preachers like to kind of skip a little bit because it doesn't, doesn't play to the rational mind. It's just a bit odd, you know, transfigured three people. What was there? Someone smoking. You know, what's going on? It's just, it's just not a helpful... I just said that. Um, it's just not a helpful, it's not a helpful thing. But it's, it's not just a cool story. It's happening right at the start of the most significant transformation experience this world has ever seen. The first fruits of it are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Jesus has come and he starts to teach and the excluded people are included. The religious abusers are being exposed. The hungry are being fed. The sick are getting well. Hope is being offered in a, in a, in a radical new way. And the heart of this gift is a man. It's Jesus. And, and as we read through, as we read through the passage, just a couple of things. First thought just is this. Peter, James, and John are just ordinary guys. They're Jewish men. We mustn't kind of venerate them as if they're some kind of, you know, very special kind of weird disciple thing. They, they, they understood what was being spoken here, the symbolism. So look, look back at the beginning, verse 2. The story starts six days later. Jewish storytelling is never accidental. Six is a specific number. It's less than perfection because seven is perfection. So if he was telling a perfect story with, with perfect people in it, the number seven will be used again and again. But he says six, six days later, there is intention here. These people are imperfect. Peter is still frequently wrong, but never in doubt. James and John are still got anger issues. They're still sons of thunder. You know, they still got anger issues. Their mates and the mates of Jesus are terrorists, collaborators, and a thief who becomes a traitor. And some guys are so unremarkable, we don't even remember they were in the 12. Thaddeus. Who even is Thaddeus? No one knows about Thaddeus. And so these are just, these are just ordinary guys doing ordinary things. And amongst the ordinary things they're doing, they're being afraid. Look, they were terrified. Well, of course they were terrified. You got the whitey bright thing going on, you got one guy becomes three guys, you know, it's all very weird, it's all very holy, and they were totally terrified. They were afraid. It's understandable for us as well. You could be superhuman if you didn't have a bit of fear right now. I mean, really, just look at your newsfeed, look at your bank balance, think about your future. Pray about the future for your kids. You know, the, the Ukraine is, is, a, is a big thing. Who knows what pandemic might be around the corner for us and how we handle it. The economy is not looking great. You know, these things are important things and you would be absolutely right to, f to feel afraid. And yet, if we really believe the trust equation, you can feel afraid, but you don't have to be afraid. Because this God who is absolutely trustworthy is the God that's with us. And he's not just with us for the good times when everything's going great. He's with us for the, for the difficult times when we don't understand what's around the corner and we haven't worked it out and we haven't become competent in these things and we just don't know. This God is with us. And we who are called by faith so often walk in fear. Don't we? 
in fear of what people will think, in fear of being found out, in fear of being let down again, in fear of letting other people down again. And we talk of faith, but we decide by fear because we've been wounded by this world. And we've guarded our hearts and we've protected ourselves and it, it cripples us. Yet we're busy doing that and he's not changed. <laughs> the God who walked and healed and exposed and fed and died hasn't moved one iota from the character that he tells us he has in the scriptures. And he's the God we show up to worship. Do you trust him? And because we're ordinary, some people are not afraid. Some of you are not afraid at all. Some of you are, I don't even know what he's talking about. I have no fear. But some of us are just too active to trust him. We're too busy being our own God that we didn't let him be God. Um, and, and God, I'm not sure you're on it. So I'm going to have to get on it. So Peter <laughs> didn't know what to say. So three tenths, the three of you, logical, three tenths. I don't know what to do. It's freaking me out. Three tenths. I got this, Messiah. <laughs> I just got, I got this. Are you with me, guys? I got this. <laughs> He's so desperate to do something. Some of us, some of us just don't trust God and his timing. And so we get ahead of God's timing. And we force something to happen and then wonder why we feel exposed. And wonder why it doesn't work out well. And wonder why God didn't show up and bless us. But you never asked him to show up and bless you. You asked him to bless the plans. So, so we do this, don't we? We announce to God our plans. You ever done this? We announce to God our plans, which seem totally reasonable according to the mind that he's, he's given to us, and we call them his plans, and then we call a prayer meeting to ask God to rubber stamp his plans slash our plans, and then we do our plans, call them the will of God, and then we wonder why we don't get the blessing that he said we might get. <laughs> and the weird thing is, who became God in that equation? Jesus, I want to help you be God. That's what he's saying, isn't it? I want to help you be God. It'd be really cool if I built some tents. Hey, stop doing things for Jesus. He doesn't need you to. <laughs> How many preachers have you heard say, stop, stop doing things, stop showing up for Jesus? He really doesn't need you to show up for him or do things for him. St stop building Jesus' church. Stop running Jesus' small groups for him. He's building his church. He's establishing his kingdom. Stop defending Jesus on Facebook. It really goes no place good. In fact, stop Facebook. <laughs> stop doing things for Jesus. Start living with Jesus and you'll live like Jesus. Start asking Jesus what he's doing and try and catch up with him. Stop forcing his hand because you think you've got a better plan. Some of us are afraid. 
Some of us are too active that we stop trusting God. And some of us, listen, this is delicate, so I have to be careful here. Maybe. Uh, some, some of us are so keen to preserve this kind of moment that we live our life in the prayer room because it's safe. Back where I come from, you know, before I changed it, we used to call the gathering room like this the sanctuary. That's weird, isn't it? It's the place we hide away from horrible things out there. And then some of us are so keen to preserve the worship feeling and the Pentecostal keys and the, the, the whole thing that we, this perpetual, never-ending worship womb thing that keeps us feeling safe. We're wired to want to stay on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. We want to live in the glory cloud. But the glory of the mountain is for life. And you're missing out. It's for relationship and you're missing out because you want to hang out. This is, Jesus is out. <laughs> he's not just in. He's, he's always moving you out, not just keeping you in. And so many of us are content to spend our adventure on constructing vehicles to keep the light in and the glory in and the presence in when the presence and the light and the glory is trying to get us out to enjoy the adventure. And if I'm right, and I usually think I am, if I'm right, none of these things are being pointed out by the Spirit of God today to condemn you. None of them, because that's not his nature. Not to shame you, but to draw you, to woo you. I love that word. To woo you. Because that's what God is always wanting to do. To draw you into him and his trust. He's so gracious. Look how he deals with Peter. I don't think I'd have had any patience for Peter, but Jesus has this incredible patience for Peter. And he's patient with you. He's patient with your faith journey. He's patient with your two steps forward and two steps back. He's patient with you making the same mistakes again and again and again because he's, he's full of grace. And he's here today not to condemn you, not to overwhelm you, not to embarrass you, but to woo you. If that's way too feely-feely for some of you to win you. That's what, that's what he's here to do. Look at this. So we've got ordinary people. Extraordinary God. And then it gets weird. We've got Moses and Elijah who show up. See, these guys, Moses and Elijah, old, old dudes with beards. I'm, I'm not sure they're quite as impressive as Justin's beard. Which is, I mean, if, if I only I could grow a beard. I can't. Anyway, um, so we've got these, these guys representing the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And the guys, the Jewish guys, know exactly what's happening here. They know exactly what to understand. They say, oh my goodness me, Jesus must be the fulfillment of the law and the promise of the prophets. 
He, he's everything we've been li living for and he's everything we're expecting. He must be the Messiah. That's exactly what's being said. And Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the goal and the end and the fulfillment of all prophecy. I'm fulfilling the law. This is who I am. I'm with you always. This is the deal. Trust me. And just in case we don't get the nuance of it, God himself shows up, verse 7, and says this. Look, a cloud came and covers and God speaks and says, this is my son. Well, God always has a lower octave when I speak about this is my son <laughs> this is my son whom I love listen to him this is Jesus trust him and then just when we think we've got it figured Moses and Elijah disappear and there's just Jesus and it's so profound and it's so disturbing and this is the thing I got you all the way here to say to you this is what's going on the past you don't have anymore. The future is dreadfully uncertain. The past that you'd lived on, the tradition and the stories and the legacy, is gone. You can't live there. Stop defining yourself by what happened then. And the future, well, we've got no idea what's going to happen in the future and you'd be a fool to start speculating about what's going to happen in the future because, because for certain the last couple of years have told us you can't rely upon almost anything for your future. You just don't know. They're gone. And then there's just Jesus. Guys, let me tell you what trust looks like. It looks like letting go of the past. You can't live there anymore if you're going to trust Jesus. Stop allowing your life to be defined by what happened and who did and the decisions you made and the deals that didn't come off and the relationships that didn't work. Do the work. Do the work. Expose the wounds. Ask God to do some healing and then you have to move on because if you live there, you become suffocated by that experience and that is not you. Let go of the past. It's true for you as an individual. It's also true for the church. We have become obsessed. And I, I, I don't know whether this is helpful to say, but, but I feel like the Lord has allowed uh, divine disruption of the way in which we do life and the way in which we do church because some of it is so broken and masks the trust relationship. Some of the things that we do and call church actually prevent us in being the church. We're so obsessed with the way we do church. We talk about it all the time, how we meet, how we gather, how we teach, what courses we're going to, what programs we're running, what we have to pay or we don't have to pay. And, and we've forgotten... We've forgotten about being the church. How would church is the word ecclesia. It means literally the gathered together and called out people of God who come together to declare that there is a kingdom that subverts and supersedes every earthly kingdom. It's a revolutionary group of people who say, we're going to do life in a different way. It has nothing to say in the Bible about buildings and programs and and. and, and this is going to, and money really doesn't. It's about how the people of God be the people of God in a way that is winsome, that embraces the kingdom of God so that the world might see that God is good. That's what, so we take, take your, give up building temporary shelters for your concerns. 
<laughs> Give up building temporary shelters for your concerns. Don't let fear lead you anymore. Let Jesus. And take your hand off the future. Stop trying to control it. Stop trying to work out, you know, what degree you're going to get, who you're going to marry, how it's going to work, because you won't make good decisions. You won't. I tell my kids all the time, I still do it, my 27-year-old, whenever we're together and she's going out, I said, make good choices. And she looks at me and goes, did you? I said, well, I married your mother. Which was a great choice, by the way. Let the Spirit of Jesus gently shake you back to life. It's just Jesus. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. It's just Jesus. I know it sounds hokey and it sounds like the kind of thing an evangelical pastor would say. But it's really true. He's the only one that perfectly fits the trust equation. He's the only place where you can perfectly plant the weight of your life. Tradition isn't going to do it. Culture isn't going to do it. Feelings definitely aren't going to do it. Reason isn't going to do it. Experience isn't going to do it. It's just not going to do it. It's not going to be enough. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do what he tells you to do. He's got a book out. It's an international bestseller. He sent his spirit to, in every moment of every day, interpret his book, to interpret life. He's given you smarts, and he's given you feelings, and he's given you wisdom, and he's given you dreams. And that's what he's doing. He's igniting these things, and do what he tells you to do. Your personal strategies are probably not going to work. Your personal obedience just might. And, and you know, here's the, here's the promise you could move from fear to faith. You could move from asleep to awake. You could move from holding on to the past and trying to control the future to living in the present with God. That's an adventure. Listen to him. So much noise. Listen to him. And I love this, I love this as we close. Jesus and the guys come down the mountain. And when they come down the mountain, having experienced all this stuff, you know, the three, the one, listen to him. He takes them straight to the guy with the greatest need. Stop trying to do things for Jesus. Start living with him. You'll end up living like him. See, see the revelation, the revelation is for transformation. Just invite him in. Again, he's not the thing that helps you do the thing. There's a really cool passage of scripture that, um, that is in the book of Revelation, which is a, an oft misunderstood book of the scriptures. Um, and, and Jesus is speaking to the churches, you know, all these really cool churches, and Jesus is speaking to them, and he's giving them a critique. And, and he gets to this church at Laodicea, and you'll have heard people speak on this before. And at Laodicea, he starts to talk about how good they are. You know, you're rich, you're successful, you've got all this stuff going on, you're a great, you know, great church, people look to you, you're fantastic. And, and then he says something that's, you know, he starts talking about wanting to vomit, doesn't he? Just feel like, ooh, makes me sick. 
And, it, and you, know, you know the whole thing. And right at the end of it, there is this passage that evangelical preachers like to preach as like a gospel presentation. Here I am. You understand? I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone would open the door, I would come in and eat with them and then with me. And some of you maybe even first gave your life to Jesus when someone said the handle is on the inside. You have to open it up. That passage of scripture is not about Jesus speaking to people who don't believe in him. It's about speaking to people who had said they trust him and had stopped trusting him. That's the, here I am. Here I am. Jesus, what are you doing on the outside? This is your church. What are you doing on the outside knocking? No, here I am. I, I, I need you to stop trusting yourself because it's not going to go well for you. I need you to stop trusting me because I'm the perfect trust equation. And ultimately, I'm life and life in all its fullness. And you're never going to get life that you can stand the weight of your life on until you put it in me. And I'm not doing it because I'm egotistical, narcissistic, or a control freak. I'm doing it because I'm God and I'm a good God and I'm here for you. And don't bother showing up really if this isn't the case because it doesn't make any sense. I'm not here to condemn you, I'm here to woo you. Here I am. Let go of the past. Don't let it define you anymore. Don't let fear lead you anymore. Let go of the future. You really don't know what it's going to look like. And t hold tight to Jesus, who is not here to constrict you. He's here to free you up into something that you can't even begin to believe or imagine. Let's pray. You know, the season that we're in, individually, collectively, whether you're a business guy, or whether you're a girl who started a not-for-profit, whether you're a church leader, or whether you have kids or no kids, the season that we're in calls for disruptive trust moments. The stuff you've been relying upon is not going to get you there. The stuff you've been singing may or may not be true of your life. And into that moment, there steps the person of Jesus saying, I know you, I love you, I made you, I was there. I see you. And I offer you my hand. And I invite you back into a trust relationship. Just let him come, let him come.